All right. It's good to have you here this evening. Uh, Open your Bibles up to John chapter 4. I want to share with you out of a... out of our passage we've been looking at this week, in part, which is uh, chapter 4 and the whole scene uh, of the Samaritan ministry that uh, has uh, surprisingly seemed to fall in Jesus' lap, and it's been exciting for us to look at that. And uh, I want to look at particularly with you verses 39 through 42 of this passage which uh, is really, really significant for us. The whole, whole passage uh, of John chapter 4 and the whole scene that is developed and spilled out here for us uh, has been the ministry that has taken place between Jesus and this woman of Samaria and then eventually, as we looked at last night, how it broadened not only to her but to the whole entire town of Sychar, which is really exciting and it's been great truth and we've looked at it together. But verses 39 through 42, John does something for us. And it's really helpful. In verses 39 through 42, he tacks on to this story some of his own comments. What he does here in particular is he gives, uh, it's not quite of a recap, uh, as it is a comment on the significant features that what makes this ministry important. In other words, he gives us a little comment uh, at the end of this story, and it's to highlight or maybe to give direction as to what is the most significant aspect of what has just taken place here in Samaria. And this has been incredible for me. And uh, Pastor and I were talking about this before the service even. And what I find is interesting is in this little, in this little note that he puts here at the end of this story... What John finds as significant in terms of what happens here in this ministry is not necessarily what I would find as significant. And what, what, what John, and where he got this from, obviously, is from Jesus himself, cautioning his disciples, focusing his disciples in on ministry. What, what he thinks is significant oftentimes is not what I think is significant. So I want to share this with you tonight, and it's great truth, and it really gives direction in our life and helps us it really does help us. So I want to read this for us and then uh, look at it with you this evening. John chapter uh, 4, verses 39 through 42. And I'm reading out the NIV. This is how it reads. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Father, we love you this evening. Really need direction in our lives. I, I don't I, I can't speak for everyone, Lord. But you and I both know that I have fantasized about ministry and what that would look like. The big churches, big events. My heart was right. My heart is right. 
Not just about those big things, not just about the, the big events and the, the big time evangelist status. It's not just about all the miracles or the insights or the knowledge that we possess as Christians. It's not about the positions we hold in the churches. Bring us back to your word tonight. What's significant in terms of ministry to you? What if, uh, what if some of the key components that make up your kingdom, when we see them crowned in heaven, what if they're the pastors of, of churches that run 15? What if they're not the, the big, high visibility people in the church that do the miraculous things, but it's the small people that are never mentioned? I really, I really want to be on board with you. I really want to be in tune with you. I want to see the way you see. Because in coming to the Scriptures, I always get excited about things that you didn't get excited about. And it bothers me. I really get drawn to things that you don't get drawn to. And it irritates me. Because I find, like my brother Fred has said, that I just don't look like you at times. And I wouldn't necessarily calling call that not looking like you bad or evil. It just, it doesn't look like you. And if it doesn't look like you, I don't want to look like that. Bring us back, Lord. Bring us back to the core meaning of this passage. What do you, what do you see as significant in ministry? And how is that going to change my focus in life? We love you this evening. Open our eyes to the truth of your word and we'll give you all the praise And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Really been stretched in this passage, and I want to share it with you this evening. And uh, verses 39 through 42 is really interesting, and it's not not, uh, accidental that he does this, uh, meaning to say that he gives us kind of a recap, and he focuses, uh, focuses us in on what is important in this passage, which you understand, if you're familiar with John's writings at all, he always does this. Uh, John's written five letters or books in the New Testament. He's written the Gospel according to John, uh, First, Second, and Third John, and Revelation. And Second and Third John can be uh, uh, debatable and it can be argued, uh, but we pretty much tradition has accepted that as written by him. So we have five books in the New Testament that are written by John, and in three out of those five books, the ones that are concretely established, written by him, which are the Gospel of John, First John, and Revelation, he gives us these opening directed statements that are similar to the one here in our passage. In other words, uh, even in our own gospel uh, that we're looking at uh, this evening, the first 18 verses are what we would call a prologue, which really set the standard and, and give definition to a lot of the things he talks about in the rest of the book. In the book of 1 John, you're gonna, you, you'll remember that uh, uh, the first four verses are, again, an introduction. The book of Revelation, the first three v- verses are an introduction. And so he gives us these parameters by which we are to view the entire book, which is extremely helpful. Uh, but he doesn't only do that in books, uh, overview of books, he does that in terms of specific passages. He does that in our passage here, but also he does that, uh, for instance, he did that back in John chapter 2 at the end of the story of the wedding at Cana, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And at the end of that passage, he, he says this, this is the first of his miraculous signs And in the original language, miraculous is not even there. It's just sign. So it should read this, the first of his signs. 
Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed His glory and His disciples put their faith in Him. So the whole focus of that passage, John wants us to understand that it really wasn't on the miracle. It was on that it was a sign and it was a revelation of His glory. He tells us that. He does that even in John chapter uh, 4 in our passage and then in the next little section which is the healing of the official son which is in John chapter 4 verses 43 to the end of that chapter. He ends that chapter with saying this was the second sign that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee. In other words, there was a significant event here. So John doing this kind of thing is not out of the ordinary. Uh, He puts these things in there because he knew Jeremiah Bullock was going to come along and was going to get focused on aspects uh, of the passage that were not too important. Now, maybe you're like me. I have found aspects, parts, pieces of this passage to be really interesting and to intrigue me and what I would think would be absolutely significant in ministry. And when I read what John talks about in this passage as significant, that he wants to recap, that he says, hey, he, he tells you the story, and then after he tells you the story, he jots down a couple words and says, hey, I want to make sure you get this, don't forget this part. If you forget anything that I just said, he recaps a little bit here, in these, these few verses that we just read, he tells us, hey, this is what's significant, you can't forget this. And what he finds is significant, I don't find that is significant. Because what I, he, see, he doesn't mention anything that I would have mentioned. Let me give you examples of this. Jesus comes to this well. He happens, and see, he's always doing this stuff. He happens to stop at a well where this woman's going to go. Just happens. But he not only just happens to stop at a well that this woman's going to go, he is, I mean, I don't know the word used for it, he is just primed for this whole situation. He, He is in tuned. Uh, he is in tune to her desperate circumstance. He knows all about that. He knows the sensitivity of the issue. In fact, when she's dragging her pot out there, he nails it on the head. He says, hey, uh, can I have a glass of water? I mean, he puts his finger right on the main problem. And there's all kinds of uh, tension there. He's a Jew. She's a, she's a, a Samaritan woman. He's a man, rabbi. All kinds of barriers there. And uh, they, they begin to talk, and, and, and he is just so pinpointed he, he knows that she's had five husbands. See, how does he know all that stuff? I mean, his preciseness of his language, and I mean, she is profoundly struck to the point where she says in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. And then, of course, she gives what I've been calling, uh, and, and this is a study we didn't get to this week, but it's called the religious answer. He addresses the spiritual issue in her life, and she gives a religious answer. She's a Samaritan. She says to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. In other words, you have your way of worship, you Jews. We Samaritans have our way of worship, which you understand, it goes all the way back to the book of 2 Kings, uh, where, or maybe 1 Kings, where uh, Assyria came in and hauled off the Samaritans and they had all this. And there was this basically split in the kingdom of Israel. And uh, from that point on, uh, Samaritans, who really became almost half-breeds, they had this tension between them and the Jews, and they had their own understanding of uh, the law, which has been interpreted. They didn't accept any of the prophets. They had their own temple they worshipped at. So she gives her religious answer. She's addressed this inconsistency in her life with her relationship to God, and she says, hey, you guys have your way, we have our way. But see, he's so clued into all that, he just, he just undermines all of it. He says, hey, that isn't the issue here. I mean, you could not be more prepared for this, for this situation. He is on top of it. 
Not to mention the fact that he's wore out and tired. He is absolutely phenomenal. But what's so interesting is John doesn't even mention any of that. He acts like that shouldn't even be a problem for us at all. Which you understand, he never mentions that kind of stuff. Uh, there's all kinds of questions that I have about Jesus that the Gospels never, ever answer. Let me give you a couple of them. Uh, flip with me, if you would, back to John chapter 1. He does this thing back in John chapter 1. And again, never addresses it. Never addresses it. I want you to look specifically at verse uh, 43, and we're going to walk through the end of the chapter here really briefly. Uh, it says, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now you'll notice Philip, the first thing he does is he runs and he finds his buddy Nathaniel. Now listen to what happens here. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And of course, Nazareth, uh, 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 Nathaniel has his own point of view on Nazareth, says, can anything good come from there? Now, verse 47, uh, here's the scene where, where Philip is bringing Nathaniel and he's bringing him to meet Jesus. Jesus is sitting with the other disciples. And the context of what's going on in verse 47 is not aimed at Nathaniel. It's aimed at the disciples talking about Nathaniel. And Nathaniel can obviously hear him. Here's how it goes, verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said, Of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. Of course, Nathaniel overhears this and says, How do you know me? This is what Jesus says. I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip even called you. And of course, Nathaniel goes, Wow! This is the one! You are the Christ! Listen to what he says. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Because there's no possible way. How did you do that? Man, isn't that neat? Wow! 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 And of course, you have this awesome revelation, but Jesus doesn't even address it, and John doesn't comment on it. And you're thinking, that's ridiculous. Hey, I'd like to really know how he did that. That'd be neat to pull that one off in a service sometime. But he never explains that. He never, he never addresses that. And of course, you come down to uh, our passage here in John chapter 4, and he does it again. Now, I want you to flip with me, which we're looking at that, that insight that he has to the Samaritan woman. And that, that got you excited. This one really will. I want you to look at John chapter 6 with me. And it's really toward the end of the chapter, so just go ahead and turn to chapter 7 and then back up a couple verses. Jesus has this insight that no one else seems to have. <laughs> He's always doing this. Uh, this is at the feeding of the 5,000, the, the tail end of that. They they've, uh, chased him over to Capernaum, across the sea. And uh, there's this big discussion on what kind of Messiah king he's going to be. Now, of course, uh, verse 60 says, On hearing this, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? In other words, uh, they've heard what, he, what his real ministry is about, which is all about dying to yourself, not living for yourself, living for God. And they're not into that. And so they begin to grumble against each other. He's talking to them. Verse 66 says, From that time on, verse 66 uh, from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, Jesus says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Verse 71, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So Jesus knew in advance 
that Judas is going to betray him. And this is all the way. This is the beginning of his ministry. Maybe seven to eight months has passed. Uh, the latest, a year has passed. Uh, he's got two years left. I mean, he's just picked up Judas. And he already knows that Judas is controlled by the enemy is going to betray him. And then again, hey, he takes time to point that out, but he never explains that. And, I, and I, there's tons of these all over. I won't mention any more. We'll go back to chapter 4. But when you get to Lazarus, I'll mention one. I won't make you turn there. But Lazarus, uh, his sister Mary comes over and says, Lazarus, says, hey, he's dying, come. And Jesus says, this sickness is not going to end in death. He already knew it. Goes to the tomb, says, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. Hey, Lazarus, get on out of here. Calls him out from the dead. He, he knew that kind of thing. When you're coming into John chapter 4, I was I, reading this whole passage, seeing this interaction between this Samaritan woman. Man, I was amazed. The insight that he had. I mean, he knew things about this woman. He could have had his own TV show like in our day. He could have beyond, whatever that is. I'm just kidding you. That just came to me. But um, see, he knew all things about, all kinds of things about this woman that he shouldn't have known. And John doesn't explain that. So I was really concerned. What I think is significant in this passage, what I think is significant to ministry, John doesn't give it a second thought. Not only here, but not throughout the whole book. So I really began to investigate this idea, and what I found is, and this should have got me from the very beginning, is John's already explained this at the very beginning of his gospel. And we haven't had a chance to look at this uh, yet this week, so I really can't expect for us to know this together, but I can give you a a short recap. Back in John chapter 3, in the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, he lays out the foundations of the kingdom for... Nicodemus. Those who are going to be in the kingdom are going to operate out of a a totally different resource than those of the world. See, what separates Jesus from the rest of the world is not that he was... uh, uh, How do I explain this? This sounds odd, but what separated Jesus from the rest of the world was not that he was God. Jesus was God, became absolutely man. That uh, he was without sin, which is the only difference between him and us. He was without sin. He was born without sin, which sin is a relational issue. Sin is a missing the mark issue. It it has nothing to do with physical abilities. He was born in intimacy with God, never broken, never never hindered. He was born in intimacy with God, this passionate relationship with God. That was perfect. There was no sin. Sin is broken intimacy with God. Sin is being out of relationship with God. Sin is being inward and turned to yourself. Jesus didn't have this. But Jesus had every limitation that you and I have. Uh, he didn't rip open his cloak and have a big S on his chest. He didn't have a, a red cape with blue outfit tights. He wasn't super Jesus. He didn't have any of his omni qualities. He wasn't all-knowing. We know that. See, if you don't know one thing, then you're not all-knowing. And the, and the disciples asked him, when are you coming back? And he said, no one knows except the Father. Which, if you don't know one thing, you're not all-knowing. So Jesus wasn't all-knowing. The only knowledge that he had was the knowledge that he had of his Father. So there was an intimacy, and everything that was out of the ordinary with Jesus was a product of the Father and not a product of himself. He wasn't omnipresent. He wasn't walking along with his disciples and said, Hey, we're going up to Galilee from Judea, we're going to pass through Samaria, and I want you to meet me there. By the way, I'm already there. (laughs) He didn't say that, because he wasn't omnipresent. He was, he was born a man and had all the limitation that men had was limited to the same resource that men had. Now, he talks about this all the time. 
And let me just share this with you briefly to help catch us up here. In chapter 7, Jesus shows up to this Feast of the Tabernacles. Now listen to what the people say about him. And if you want to, if you're, I, I hear you're turning there, in John, uh, look at verse 14 of chapter 7. And I'll read that a little bit for us. It says, Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And the Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Hey, he's the carpenter's son, right? I mean, what, did he take night classes? How did he get this? How did he get such learning without having studied? And Jesus answered in verse 16, My teaching is not my own, it comes from the one who sent me. And he goes on this whole explanation that all the wisdom, all the insight, all the things that you're hearing are not my own, they're coming from the Father. In fact, Jesus was nothing more than the demonstration of the Father. Jesus came and he, he was so tight with God, he was so intimate with God, that whatever the fa- was on the Father's mind was on Jesus' mind. And everything extraordinary that happened in the life of Jesus wasn't the product of Jesus, it was the product of his Father. And to give you another quick illustration of that, Jesus tells his disciples this in chapter 14. And if you would like to turn there, you don't have to. I can look at this with you. But beginning at verse 8 of chapter 14, uh, Jesus is, is talking with his disciples. This is the intimate setting toward the end of the gospel. Next few chapters is really intimate language. And... Uh, Jesus begins the chapter with telling that, hey, don't be frustrated, don't, don't, don't sweat it, hey, I'm going, and you know the place I'm going, all that kind of stuff. And they say, hey, we don't know where you're going. And finally, Philip cuts in in verse 8 and says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And listen to what Jesus says. Don't you know me, Philip? Don't you know me? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, they're not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing His work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And then he adds this, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Now, why would he say that? If you don't believe what I'm saying, believe in what you're seeing. Believe on the evidence of the miracles. Why would he say that? Because they know Him. They've slept with him. They've heard him snore. They've watched him get tired. See, this is a physical Jesus in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, the only Gospel that shows him weeping. He's crying. He's sensitive. He he, he gets angry in the the temple. He's emotional. It shows him being physically whipped at at, at chapter 4. He falls down, can't carry... All these kinds of things. It shows a very real physical Jesus. Not a Jesus with sin in his life. Not broken, not broken communication with the Father, not intimacy issues, but he's a man. He has all the things that we have. He probably got running noses. He probably got sick once in a while. He had all the limitations. Probably his back probably hurt once in a while. His feet got sore. See, he had all of those things. And Jesus says, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, believe on the evidence of the miracles. Because I'm one of you guys. I can't do that stuff. Because the only way they could justify the miracles is that the miracles was not done out of his own strength, but was done out of the Father. Which means that everything that took place in the life of Jesus was not the product of him, it was the product of his father living in him. And if anyone's going to believe this, it's going to be this group. It's going to be the holiness group. See, what makes sermons powerful is not the communication of the sermon, it's the Holy Spirit that comes through the sermon. See, if I want healed, I don't need to go to Benny Hinn. Jesus heals me. Benny Hinn may not be bad, but the idea is, is Benny Hinn doesn't have the power, Jesus is the power. 
See, that's what we're talking about here. And John, and we didn't get a chance to look at that this week, but John's already nailed all of that in John chapter 3. And what he's talking about is what's going on in the life of Jesus is, is no different, you understand, than what's going on in our life. See, Jesus was not Superman. Jesus was an ordinary, average member of the kingdom. Now, I know we're flipping around a lot, but you're going to need proof of this. Listen to this. At the end of the Gospel of John, John nails this, he brings this home. And this is what he says. He raises from the dead, he comes up to Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene falls, grabs a hold of his ankles, this is what he says. Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Now listen to what he says. Go instead to my brothers. Doesn't say servants, doesn't say subjects, doesn't say children. It's his brothers, which is an equality type of thing. Same father, brothers. He says, go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my father and your father. To my God and your God. And then, of course, she goes. He passes through this wall a couple verses down. says, peace be with you. And then this is what he says. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. In the same manner, the same way that God has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Which the same resource for the ministry that he had is the same resource for the ministry that they had. He says, if you forgive anyone their sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. So the same authority that Jesus had is the same authority they had. And he even tells them later on, and we didn't get to this part in John chapter 14, but the same miracles that Jesus did is they're going to do. And he's always telling them, don't be surprised, don't be impressed by what I'm doing. You're going to do greater things than these because I'm returning to the Father. Wow. So he's already addressed all of this back in John chapter 3. That the product of what's going on in Jesus Christ is the communication and the intimacy of the Father that is giving him insight. Now, I can't explain, and John doesn't think it's significant, how to, how to talk about this. And we have, time, we have at times made big deals about ministry. That's not big deals. Uh, and we're all familiar, and, and this is a safe environment to talk about it, but we're all familiar with the idea of tongues. Tongues is a biblical concept. It's talked about in the scripture. Now, maybe not the way we would talk about tongues today, which in the original language is languages. Uh, the book of Acts, laying all the hands, Holy Spirit comes in and they witness by speaking in other languages. Now, I have some very dear, God-fearing, in love with Jesus Pentecostal friends. And they speak in tongues. But they don't look at me and say, hold on, Jeremiah. Have you ever spoken in tongues? No. Well, then you must not be filled with the Holy Spirit. But see, I never looked at them and said, hold on, were you saved in a Chevy Camaro like I was? Well, then you're not saved. <laughs> see, that's not the big deal is what I'm talking about. And you understand when the disciples, when Jesus breathed the disciples, uh, breathed the Holy Spirit on them in this book, they never spoke in tongues. And people were saved without speaking in tongues, filled with the Spirit without speaking in tongues. So that's not a, see, that's not a prerequisite. That was, a, that was an attribute. That was a byproduct of the ministry that took place there. I'm not going to argue with that kind of thing. But see, that's not what is significant here. So we've made significance about stuff in ministry. That is not significant at all. And John doesn't even mention that. See, he doesn't even draw the conclusions on that sort of thing. He doesn't even mention it. That there is, that there is all kinds of, there is all kinds of, uh, how do I say this to you? There's all kinds of ways of explaining this. I, I can't explain 
to you how I knew that I was supposed to marry my wife. And no one can talk me out of that. I didn't hear a voice. I didn't have some, it wasn't written in the sky. I had people tell me, unless you can find a scripture about it, you know, you don't marry her. But they don't even say Corinda in the whole Bible, so I couldn't find a scripture on it. But I know in my heart at Olivet Nazarene University, I remember the Wednesday of chapel, a lady came and spoke. And I knew in my heart, I mean, it was overwhelming that she was the woman I was to marry. And I went down to the altar. And I knew it. Now, how do you explain that? Because I tell, how did you know that God, uh, you, you were supposed to marry your wife? I said, God told me. Wow, really? God told you? How did he tell you? I don't know. How, does, how did Jesus know these kind of things? I don't know. It's not important. That's not the significant part. My mother, and this may sound odd, and I probably shouldn't say stuff like this. Two weeks before her, my grandpa died, her father, uh, she was working at her office in Baltimore Hospital down to medical records, and a voice behind her said, Rhonda, your dad's going to die. She turned around, no one was there. She came home, told everybody, we're really, we're really messed up, really scared about it. Two weeks later, he died. Now, can I validate that? No. Could someone say, well, she probably just had too much coffee and maybe a radio was on? And Well, yeah, that's possible. And I can't explain that. can't expect you to live like that. But what I'm saying is, is maybe that's not what the significant point of the whole deal is about. And that when you look at this passage of Scripture... See, if that was so significant, the things that Jesus is doing, they would have given instruction on that. That the most important, and this is so wonderful, the most important aspect of this ministry was not on the bells and whistles, not on the insight, not on the miracles, not on all that kind of stuff, which, by the way, it seldom is in Jesus' ministry. He seldom draws attention to his flashy miracles. See, I always found it amazing that everybody says Jesus was such a good preacher. John doesn't even record a sermon by Jesus. See, no one goes away from one of, Je- one of Jesus saying, man, did you hear that sermon? Well, that's the best three-point sermon I've ever heard. I tell you what, man. And no one comes away. No one comes away remembering the sermons of his. Do you know what they remember? They remember time spent with him. They can tell you stories that happened. Oh, there's this one time when we was in this upper room. You wouldn't believe that. Oh, and another time walking by this fig tree. You wouldn't believe that. And this other time we went up to this wedding. And, and oh, still there's another time we was in Samaria. And oh, hey, and then there's this time we went over to Galilee and Judea. And See, those are the things that he remembers. And by the way, when you look at our passage right here, what is the significant feature that that, that John is listing for us? This is what he finds so significant, which is along those same lines of getting involved with, spending time with, loving the person. Listen to what he finds significant. Verse 39, our passage. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him See, this is what the significant aspect of the ministry is. Many of the people in that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. That's what she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. He stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Now, what I find is significant. See, Jesus didn't see this woman with a bunch of problems, preach a really hot sermon, give her some good advice and probably a $20 bill, and then hop in his fifth wheel and head on up to Galilee. He cared about her. In fact, I had to go through the whole story again and outline, re-outline, what it was significant to Jesus and what was not significant to me. See, what was significant to Jesus is, number one, he listened to her. Number two, he was aware of her circumstances. Number two, she was so concerned about water, which as we've looked at this week, the real issue wasn't water, it was a relationship with God. 
but he seems concerned about what she's concerned about. Could I say that a lot of things in my life that I get so worked up over mean nothing? But what I have found, what gets me worked up, gets him worked up. See, he's so good, man. We talked about this today. And the issues and the tragedies that come in our life that so distract us from what he's doing. He cares about that. See, whatever bothers me bothers him. He's that involved in my life. Whatever gets me upset gets him upset. And he's sitting here carrying on this conversation about this woman. And not only that, but see, he sees her for who she really is. And he just doesn't give her some good advice and drop a 20 in her hand and say, hey, good luck with your friends. He goes and spends two days in that town. Now, let me ask you something. It's he and his 12 disciples. And I'm sure he doesn't have a condo on Samaritan Avenue where he goes through there all the time. It's probably the first time he's been in this town. Who do you think he stayed with when he stayed there for two days? He stays with this woman, man. She was an outcast. But you understand, listen to what the people say to her in verses 42. This is the last half of the passage. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. They look at her and say, hey, listen, you've been kind of flaky in the past, got all these husbands running around. We've all been kind of leery of you. But now her identity is wrapped up in, hey, this is the woman who has introduced the Savior of the world to us. How do we know? We spent two days at her house. We couldn't believe it. Everybody crowded around her house. We had the services in her basement. See, what's significant for ministry in Jesus is not the money. It's not the gymnasiums. See, it's not numbers. And how do you convey that? See, it's not preaching. It's, it's not being healthy. See, it's none of that. It's, it's literally seeing and embracing people the way that he sees. See, that's so significant. Because you can make the biggest money, have the biggest churches, but if you're missing that, see, he's not concerned about that. See, real ministry to Jesus really has, see, it really has little to do with, I've never done miracles. I'm not even that hot of a preacher. But I love people. And uh, I don't know how you apply this to your life. But I really get aggravated. And there's nothing wrong with programs. But see, no program is going to replace that. No building. I hear, well, the reason we're not reaching our community is we don't have contemporary music. Well, sure, you should, probably should sing music that's, that the outside world would sing. But it's bigger than the music. You could have contemporary music and never, never reach anybody. And I don't know who you know at your jobs, but they don't need somebody sticking their, sticking their finger in their face telling them how bad they are. They need you to love them. You need to go spend two days with them. See, Jesus comes up to tax collectors and he doesn't give them a righteous sermon. He says, hey, come down from the tree. Let's go to your house. You having a party tonight? Hey, I want an invitation. That's really what it's about. That's real ministry. You know, that's, that's how they won me to Jesus. I was kicked out of the Marine Corps for drug use in 1995. And a Christian family picked me up off the side of the road and brought me into their home for three months. They didn't hand me a 20. And a little booklet that says, hey, how to be saved. So I'll be frank with you, I didn't want that. 
the physical hand of Jesus appeared in this couple that they were flawed. They had all kinds of problems. But they showed me the love of Jesus. See, that's ministry. It isn't about all the flashy stuff. In fact, when it really comes down to it, that's what we're graded on. That's what we're measured up to. What a truth. Father, we love you this evening. I'm so pleased with you. Would you give me the perspective you have? I'm in a church this week that runs 15. Next week I'm in a church that runs 150. The next week I'm going to be in a church that runs 140. And the next week, a church that runs 420. Uh, 420 to 450. Who knows what the next church will be like? Wouldn't it be something if you viewed all the churches the same? (laughs) You are so wonderful. Breathe the breath of life in our ministries, Father. Ministry is about people, even a person. It's about loving those that you've put in our path. Pouring our life out for those around us. Would you uh, adjust our perspectives? Would you straighten our understanding of ministry out? Until we become walking and living ministers as you are. We love you this evening. Thank you for the opportunity of getting into your word. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.